Hare Krishna. Uh, I am speaking on Skype with a devotee. I knew his father very well. His father was a very good devotee, did a lot of valuable service. And so he has some questions for me, and if I get the right answers, I can win valuable prizes. <laughs> so, uh, so let's go. Let's 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 go forward. With All the right. Questions. First question: um, Are scriptures, Vedic scriptures, are scriptures in ISKCON? Are they are they historical? and literal or are they meant to be interpreted so they're not historical oh we're we're jumping into the wide world of hermeneutics okay the first question was the scriptures that we use are they uh, meant to be taken literally or are they meant to be interpreted hermeneutics by the way is sort of like the discipline which deals with interpretation and um uh historical i mean they are historical in the sense that they're obviously written within history, but are they historical in the sense that are some portions of it meant for other historical times? And, you know, or, or is it all? So, first of all, I'll say a little bit about this hermeneutics. Actually, in the Western world, um, hermeneutics as sort of a systematic endeavor became prominent with the Protestant Reformation. Because before the Protestant Reformation, which actually happened during, when Lord Chaitanya was on the planet, that's interesting, because you had this religious monolith in the Western world, there's only one church, and so there's no question of religious freedom, and there's only one church. And so Lord Chaitanya actually broke up that monopoly during his lifetime, which is interesting. But, but, but the, um, one of the main... Uh, uh, preaching points, one of the main convictions of the Protestant Reformation was that no, that of course the Bible, we get knowledge about God and about the soul. In fact, we get all, all important knowledge from the Bible. And anything that's not in the Bible is not really important, I guess, you know, making sure you have pure drinking water anyway, but I guess in terms of philosophically, so, so before the Protestant Reformation, if you want to know, first of all, it was illegal to read the Bible. It was illegal to read the Bible. The first uh, person that translated the Bible into English and then published it, uh, King Henry VIII in England expressed his deep gratitude by killing him. Uh, and the idea was that if only that if only the priests and the bishops and the cardinals and the pope, if only they are allowed to read the Bible, then obviously no one's going to disagree with them because no one knows what the Bible says. And so, for example, if they have different sacraments, like the, you know, the wafer is the body of Jesus and the wine is the blood of Jesus, which is actually not in the Bible. And so, and so there's all kinds of things the church was saying and doing that actually are not in the Bible. And so if no one reads the Bible, you can do whatever you want, say whatever you want. And so Luther's point, which is really, although Luther kind of hated the Renaissance because he didn't like the idea of reading pagan philosophy like Aristotle or, you know, or, and stuff like that. So that's a whole other point, the relationship of the Christian church to um, pagan knowledge, because the pagan world, the Greco-Roman world was very sophisticated intellectually. And uh, in, in, in 
classical Christianity, which means Christianity before the fall of the Roman Empire, um, for example, the, the second most prominent theologian after Paul of Tarsus, that's a whole other topic, but anyway, after so-called St. Paul, the second most influential theologian was uh, Augustine, St. Saint, Saint Augustine for the faithful, and uh, he was a Platonist. He was a Christian Platonist. He thought Plato was like the best thing that happened to philosophy since, I guess, uh, you know, sliced bread. And so, so if you look in the classical world, the uh, in late antiquity, the Christians, they were intellectually, many of them sophisticated. They, had, they made their arguments in terms of the categories and the logical rules of pagan philosophy, which was, wasn't pagan, it was just good philosophy. And so then, of course, you have the collapse of the Roman Empire, the collapse of really of learning, collapse of academics. And then when it starts to revive, uh, for example, you get people who in their time, now they're considered very conservative, but in their time, they were actually like cutting edge radicals so much so that people thought, is this bona fide? And an example of someone who in his time was so radical, people thought, is this bona fide, was Thomas Aquinas who wrote the Summa Theologica, which became official Catholic doctrine. But when he first did that, people were thinking, this, is this bona fide? And he, of course, just at the end of the Middle Ages, just when the Middle Ages, high Middle Ages are turning into the Renaissance. And um, because the way it's put often is he baptized Aristotle. Because people, you know, if, if you lived in the Middle Ages, which if you want to understand the Middle Ages, uh, just watch that Monty Python movie you know, the Holy Grail, and then you'll understand the Middle Ages. So, and so then they discovered Aristotle, actually because the Renaissance happened first in the Islamic world, by the way. In those days, the Western, Western Europeans were kind of like the stupid terrorists, and uh, the Muslims were intellectually much more sophisticated, ironic, but so they actually had their Renaissance first, and, um, and they, they rediscovered Aristotle. So Aristotle is very impressive. If you're like living in a Monty Python movie, if you're living kind of in these dark ages and you discover, and, and you're intelligent and you suddenly discover Aristotle, it you know literally will blow your mind because he's so intelligent and categorical. So, so basically Thomas Aquinas took this amazing philosophical edifice, which was Aristotle, and he just Christianized it. And so for some people that's really, that's crazy because Aristotle, never knew Jesus. And Aristotle never accepted Jesus in his heart, was never saved from his sins by the blood of the lamb. And therefore, what the hell does he know? And, and, and so this idea that pagans, well, they thought, well, you know, he was before Jesus. So it's not like he knew Jesus and rejected him. So he's not evil like Jewish people. So, you know, they kind of gave him a pass, at least some people did, because, and Aristotle's, I mean, intellectuals in Europe are going crazy. Oh my God, Aristotle, it's like, you know, it's like the Beatles or something. And so I don't care if my parents don't like the Beatles, you know, I'm gonna listen to it. And so anyway, so that was controversial. Then the Renaissance, I mean, I mean, the word Renaissance means rebirth. And so rebirth of what? Of pagan culture. It's a rebirth of pagan culture. So the whole Renaissance, even by the name of it, is this bold declaration 
that we want to get back to this amazing culture, which was the culture of people who were not Christians. So you can imagine back then, coming out of the Dark Ages, that was extremely controversial. And one, one person that thought, this is crazy, we can't do this, we don't need pagans, we don't need philosophy, we don't need science, all we need is the Bible. And one person who was preaching that was Martin Luther. And so what's interesting here is that Luther is, of course, he's North European and he's kind of a backlash. He's reacting against a rebirth, a renaissance of Southern European culture. But in any case, um, the ironic thing, even though Luther kind of hated the Renaissance, and therefore he had these slogans like sola scriptura, only scripture, sola fede, only faith. But in a sense, he was one of the people that really advanced the Renaissance. Because breaking up the Catholic or the Vatican monopoly, suddenly there was at least, it was conceivable that you could have religious freedom. It was conceivable that you could choose your religion. Whereas before the Reformation, you know, yeah, sure, you can choose your religion and we will express our appreciation by burning you alive. You know, sort of as just a small way of showing you how much we appreciate it. And so but with the Protestant Reformation, they had to fight. There were these heavy wars, these horrible, for centuries. I mean, for over 100 years, there was these brutal, cruel wars. I mean, they literally had to fight for the right to choose their own religion. And not only was it the right to choose your own religion, but you weren't just going from one totalitarian religion to another. You actually could choose even your own theology. Because there's some reference in the Bible which talks about the priesthood of all believers. And so the idea was that if you believe in Jesus, you have to read the Bible. You don't just listen to a priest. You read it, and then you have to decide what Jesus or God is saying to you. So it was this intellectual freedom. It wasn't merely freedom of religion. It was intellectual freedom. Because you might decide, I don't like any of the religions on the menu. I'm not going to order any of them. I'm going to cook my own meal. And so you get, for example, Calvin that says, well, thanks, Luther, but no thanks. I've got my own ideas about Protestantism. And there's all kinds of people, the Anabaptists, and they're just, you know, they're just, they start multiplying. So people have intellect. So getting back to your question, the reason I'm bringing up all this, you see, this is not an age-related thing where I forgot what you said. <laughs> the reason, The reason I... I'm not there yet. The reason I brought this up is because when you have this new situation where people are reading the Bible themselves, it's one of the first things Luther did, which was shocking revolutionary. He translated the Bible into German. And in doing so, he actually standardized the German language because European languages tend to be like be different every time you, you could every time you went 20 miles down the road, they spoke a different German or a different English or different French. And so, in a sense, by translating the Bible into these more modern languages, not just you know, Latin or Greek, uh, everyone could read it. Plus they had the printing press, but when people are reading the Bible, they're saying, well, wait a second, you know, Jesus never said that there's original sin, or Jesus never, and some people said, Jesus never said that I'm God. Jesus never said that, or Jesus never said that, you know, the wine turned into, you know, something like that. So. And of course, some people defend it. Some people said, well, yeah, he did say it, but 
But the point is people are arguing about the Bible. And when you argue, and the people arguing were very intelligent. Some, some of them were obviously stupid, but you know, a lot of them were very, very serious intellectuals. They were highly educated people. <clears throat> and when people start arguing what the Bible means, you know, intelligent people say, okay, what are the rules here? If like, if you're gonna play a game like soccer or have a, you know, boxing match, what are the rules? And so when you start formulating rules for interpreting the Bible, guess what? That's hermeneutics. And so that's how hermeneutics really comes, you would say, roaring back to Western civilization. If, if they, in fact, if they had it in classical times, I mean, they did interpret text, but, but not, not in this sort of systematic academic way so much. And then it's funny because hermeneutics, where the, and they start to say, well, what does the Bible mean? Well, what is this statement in the Bible? Is that symbolic? Is that allegorical? Is that literal? And of course, you have some people saying that, no, every word of the Bible is the literal, infallible word of God, which is kind of seriously, because the Bible contradicts itself all the time. Like, for example, in the four Gospels, people finally figured out that in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get different descriptions of the same story. Just like you get different descriptions of some things in the Mahavarta. So anyway, so people started asking questions like, you know, hermeneutics, what is literal, what is symbolic, what is allegorical, et cetera, et cetera. And who wrote these books? And for example, was God really speaking through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Was God speaking through Paul? Because half the New Testament practically is, or a big part of it, almost half it, is just letters that a guy named Paul wrote down. He was just writing letters to people. Of course, you know, letters were very serious back then because they didn't have telephones or, you know, cell phones. They didn't text back then. So obviously they were very primitive and barbaric and intellectually stunted because they didn't text. But um, <clears throat> so, uh, so they began to argue about all these things. They began to argue. And in a sense, as these different religions separated out from each other, in a sense, they had hermeneutical differences. They had different interpretations of the Bible. And interesting, just to add this and we'll get back to your point, interestingly, uh, it spread from there because the justification for monarchy had always been divine right, that God wants kings. God doesn't want people to vote, he wants a king. And so power comes from God down through a king, you could say through a priest who kind of you know blesses the king, and then it comes through the king to the people, divine right monarchy. But then people start saying, well, uh, if even priests can't just dictate to us, we have a right to read the Bible ourselves. Where does the Bible say we have to have a king? Where does the Bible say this particular king is representing God? He may be a king, but maybe he's not really representing God. In fact, he's absolutely not representing God because I'm a Catholic and, and this king's a Protestant, or I'm a Protestant and this king's a Catholic. And so then, from the hermeneutics of scripture, the Bible, you start to get a hermeneutics of political science, like who actually is authorized to have power over us. And then of course it goes from there to literature and it's just, and it gets into the full flowering of the decadent modern world. But so going back to your question, going back to your question, uh, the question you raise is a hermeneutic question. It's a hermeneutic question. 
And we know, well, at least some of us know, because we pay attention to what Prabhupada and the Bhagavatam actually say, we know that some parts of scripture are not meant to be taken as literally like literal history. For example, in, in the fourth canto, when Narada Muni tells the Paranjana story, and then he says, actually, this is a symbolic story. He says that. And then he actually explains you what the symbolism is, that when I said, for example, Paranjana, what I really mean, he's not really a historical king, he's actually the Jiva soul. And uh, his wife is not really a, an actual human wife, it's really his own intelligence, which may be material or spiritual. And when a Brahmin comes to Paranjana's next life, when he becomes she, as Queen Vaidarvi, that Brahmana is actually Vishnu. And, and the chariot is actually the body, and the five gates going in and out of his city are actually the senses. And so Narada Muni actually gives you a catalog of the symbolism. So that's clearly a symbolic story. And then, for example, you have a statement in the Chaitanya Charitamrita that says that, as Prabhupada translates it, there are illusory stories in Shastra. And the examples given are when uh, Krishna's queens were kidnapped after Krishna left this world and Arjuna was bringing them back to Hastinapur to protect them, and they were kidnapped. And there are other stories like that that are actually uh, illusory stories. For example, there's a story in the, uh, I think, 12th Canto about how Krishna left this world, a hunter shot an arrow. But actually, that's not, that's not, that's an illusory story. That's just literary. Because even the Bhagavatam says, actually, Krishna decided himself to go back. It wasn't that someone forced him to leave and even left behind an illusory material body to fake out atheists so they don't bother him, you know. And so, so if you look at Shastra, uh, and of course we know that certain uh, statements in Shastra are only meant for certain historical times. Now take the Bhagavatam. The main, you could say, almost like hermeneutic book or the main epistemological work in our tradition, which means how do you know you know, is Jiva Goswami's Tattva Sandarbha, which is, which is an epistemological study. Like what are valid sources of knowledge? And then he compares, you know, like direct perception or, you know, uh, inferential reasoning or, you know, just human reason or scripture. And ultimately, this is just water, don't believe my critics. So ultimately, Jiva Goswami concludes that the most important source of knowledge for us, or for everyone, is the Bhagavatam. Now the Bhagavatam says that sannyasis should either go naked, which I'm sure will make me very popular with the leaders of ESCON, that a sannyasi should either go naked or wear deerskin. Now, what's interesting is that clearly going naked, I mean, even Lord Chaitanya didn't allow that. And when one of his followers put on deerskin, Lord Chaitanya said, take that off. And so Lord Chaitanya ordered someone not to follow the Bhagavatam verse. And certainly not to go naked. Why? Because that's not, that's not an eternal truth. It's just, that's an example of the Bhagavatam giving certain statements for time and place. And then, of course, Bhakti Siddhanta and Prabhupada, as sannyasis, did not dress like Lord Chaitanya. So, 
Or, for example, statements to say descriptions in the Bhagavatam that one should practice these very sophisticated yoga processes where you meditate, you know, on different chakras or whatever and all this stuff. And, of course, we know not in this age. And yet the Bhagavatam uh, describes these yoga processes as something you should do by using, let's say, grammatically verbal forms such as the optative, which means you should do this or you must do it, or just a direct command, do this. So even though the Bhagavatam is directly instructing us, even grammatically, to do things, we know that in this age, we don't practice those kinds of yoga. So, so there are all kinds of, there are statements which are only for certain times and places. There are statements that are symbolic. There are, like the Purunjana story, there are parts of scripture which are, um, what was the other one I gave? I don't remember anymore. I'm going through so many categories. Uh, illusory stories from the, the Chaitanya, Chaitanya, Chaitanya Charitamrita says. And so, therefore, uh, it doesn't mean that we have the freedom to just, um, you know, put any verse we want, whatever category. Okay, here it says that Krishna has a spiritual body. No, that's just an allegory. Or that's just, yeah, so we don't, so if the Bhagavatam does not tell you, or other acharyas does not tell you, then uh, we accept things as actual history, as actual history. So um, anyway, that, that's one answer. Thank you. Uh, next question. That was like a deluxe answer. Yes. Um, through hearing your lectures and your uh, talks, I've, I've noticed that you have a great knowledge or a lot of knowledge about Western philosophy oh, and Western, yeah. his, West, Western uh, history. Radha said I have great knowledge of Western philosophy and history. Thank you. I have some knowledge, but I'll accept, and, I'll accept that. Yeah. yeah, so... Just kidding. Uh, here at university, I've, I've learned some, and I've also learned some on my own just by listening to podcasts or reading books. So I've, I've definitely seen a benefit, and it's actually helped me in my understanding of Krishna consciousness to, to know these other philosophies. However, um, we also know that Srila Prabhupada, he also had a great understanding of philosophy, of not just Vedic philosophy, but other, other philosophies. Prabhupada, I wouldn't say that Prabhupada studied very much other philosophies. He was certainly brilliant. And he asked his disciples at one point to present to him Western philosophies and he would respond to them, which he did in a very brilliant way. But Prabhupada didn't really study, I think, other philosophies very much. I just want to be accurate. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what he studied in college, actually, I don't know. Um, but um, anyways, my question is, is there a benefit uh, in understanding other philosophies in order to sort of um, enhance one's own knowledge of, of Krishna and, and sort of broaden in our mind and yes. understanding. Okay, is there, a benefit, is there a benefit in understanding other philosophies to broaden our understanding? Or, um, Prabhupada, when I first joined the movement in 1969 in Berkeley, I wrote Prabhupada a letter asking him if I should stay in school at the university or drop out and just, I guess, do Sankirtan and really bestow the highest benefit on the world by selling incense. But um, 
<laughs> so interestingly, you know, Prabhupada wrote back to me and he said, I should stay in school. He said, and he said, I want you to get a nice education so you can preach to similarly educated people. He didn't say just read my books. I, I did read Prabhupada's books. I read them all the time. But he said specifically to try to present Krishna consciousness to educated people, you have to speak their language. You have to really understand, you know, how to present things to them. And so I found extraordinary benefit. It depends on what a devotee's service is, what their inclination is. If someone just wants to be a pujari, then maybe they don't need to study Western philosophy. But, and it, it's, it's also, it, it's not just learning what those other philosophies were, because a lot of them are just actually not that interesting. But it's really um, learning also just how to reason and knowing something about other philosophies, knowing how to reason. For example, reason, recently I've made sort of a study of postmodern philosophy, which I think is abominable. It, 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 it's sort of relativism, it, and it's just kind of comically self-contradictory because one of their main points is that there are no great truths. At least there are no great truths that human beings can discover. But of course, that there are no great truths is a great truth. So there are no great truths except that there is no great truth. So it's just, it's like clownish. It's comically self-contradictory. You get these so-called famous philosophers that are just, it's like, seriously, you really don't see that you're, contradicting yourself but i so i think i think it depends on your service you know it's yukta vairagya whatever we need to accomplish the particular service that we are inspired to do thank you and i have one last question yes last question um do you believe that it's still possible for iskon given sort of our, the current state of ISKCON, to carry on uh, Srila Prabhupada's mission of preaching, um, or sort of has ISKCON reached a point of no return where you might need to branch out and do something else, kind of like Srila Prabhupada did with his own No, I, I don't uh, think, movement. no. It's, I think that would be overly pessimistic. Uh, no. I, I mean, as a historian i would say that no this con definitely can be saved well i mean it's not that it's not saved but what i mean is the western mission can be saved there are some really great devotees in the west who are preaching have really great programs but um but overall the western movement is not really uh to use an old english expression not setting the thames on fire i mean i mean the western Hare krishna movement is really not going anywhere seriously i mean in terms of being relevant in terms of becoming a prominent spiritual movement it's just not happening and so um so yeah i'm, I'm doing everything i can we're all limited but we all do what we can I'm doing everything i can to try to get the western movement going and uh i'll just do the best i can and i hope everybody else does the best they can but it's certainly not at a point where we give up and just try to do something else because Prabhupada started ISKCON, so whatever movement we start will be much worse than ISKCON. I did have one uh, bonus question. Um, oh my God, I'm so lucky. <laughs> he has a bonus question. And, you know, we've, we've heard rumors, uh, you know, the devotees always spreading rumors uh, or fake news, um, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Um, 
about you writing some uh, novel. Malabar yeah, I am. Novel. That is not That's... fake news. That is not fake news. <laughs> I'm, I'm just finishing a novel, and it should be done in a, a month or two, and I hope you'll all read it and enjoy it and get and distribute it. So, yeah, that's not fake news. Okay, great. You never know, you know. There's yeah, so the, many... the rumor is that I colluded with the Russians. That is fake news. <laughs> <laughs> but not, a, not about my novel. The, the, yeah, the address, the, I think he's doing the address in about 20 minutes. Oh, so well, I don't know if we'll I'll watch make, that. I'll make sure to turn my computer off. Okay. <laughs> All right, Prabhupada. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, Thank you very much, and uh, I'd like to thank all the devotees here on Facebook that watched, and uh, hope to see you all again soon. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Bo Maharaj.